Michael, why do you say that talent cannot be taught? I think talent is something that, that people just have or they don't. Like if I had a script, a six-page audition for a television show or a movie, and I gave it to 100 people randomly on the street, a certain number of them would be able to look at it, read it, and kind of make it responsive and somewhat real. And many of them wouldn't. That's, I mean, the base level of talent, from my definition, is having great first instincts. Because you have to, particularly in film and television, there's, no, there's not a lot of rehearsal, there's not a lot of time to sort of find your character and all that stuff. So your instincts are, your first instinct, if it's right about 75-80% of the time, that to me is the baseline level of the definition of talent. I don't think you can teach it. You can teach strategy. You can teach people to be better with what talent level they have. But I don't. I think talent is just something people have or they don't, and and you see it in children. I mean, you see it in little kids. So I, I, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's how I feel about it. Can we define instinct? Sure. And and maybe give an example. Sure. So um, when you're an actor is the is the slave is too strong, or the actor is o obedient to the text. The text is everything, at least that's how I was taught and that's how I was trained. And so the instinct is when you look at something very quickly, like if I get an audition for, for a TV show or a movie and there's very little time, I look at it quickly and I go, because also I'm seasoned and I've done this a long time, it's not like I'm a 23 year old anymore. So I can look at it and instantly have a take on how it's supposed to go. For me, it's rhythmical and it's outside in, meaning uh, I work on externals. And I wasn't taught that. In fact, that, that was oppositional to how I was taught. Inside meaning uh, thinking about it, wondering about it, dredging up some old experience in your life to somehow illuminate it. I work with externals. And so it, it helps me when you talk about the, the instinct and having the idea to just look at something quickly we call that in the business, they call that a cold read. Like, here's a cold, can you cold read this? In other words, you just look at it and you read it and you have something, or you don't. That's talent and that's instinct. And I kind of don't think that can be taught. I think you either have that or you don't. Training helps that. I mean, when you have good foundational training, it helps that because you are in practice and you're getting better at uh, being able to, you, you get better faster. We have, particularly in film and television, you have to get better faster. You have to find a way to short circuit and get to the results faster. So let's say, you know how they mention that people, certain people have more street smarts than others or those in combat, certain people just kind of thrive mm -hmm. in those situations or something innate in them. Is that similar to being on stage and working with another person in front of you? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good analogy. It's interesting. I. I had a woman in the very first class that I taught <clears throat> who was um, a friend of mine from the voiceover business, and she was not an actor. She was a, mostly a writer and a really interesting creative person. Highly creative, highly imaginative, funny, but not a trained actor. But she wanted to take this acting class. And she would come in every week with results uh, from the work she was doing outside of class. 
that were weird and interesting and fun and not typical actor stuff. It was off-center a little bit. And I finally said to her, I just want to know because you don't have, you really don't have the foundational training that a lot of people have. How do you arrive at that? What is your, what is your process? And she said, well, I just pretend that what's happening is happening to me. I went, okay, we can all go home now. That's the lesson. Because that for film acting in particular, I come from the theater originally, but for film acting, it is a personal identity art form. You are the vessel through which the story flows. I don't know if I answered your question. You did, yeah. And did she continue on or she no, just wanted she to didn't. be there? She, she just did. Well, she did for a while. I think she was in class for maybe a year. She had fun and it was great for her. And it, I think it helped, um, it helped her other work, which was voiceover and writing. Because it's all kind of the same. I mean, it's different. It's in different silos, but it's really all the same. It's all the same instinct. It's all the same creative impulse to do something. Look, when you have, like, I have two sons who are grown up now and married and all that. But when they were little kids, they no one had to teach them to run around the house with a hat on and pretend they were a Power Ranger or, or whatever it was they were pretending to be. That's just a human hardwired instinct to play and transform. And I don't think that's taught. I think it is, Vogler and I, when I did the interview with Chris Vogler, talked about story also being just sort of hardwired into the species, the hero and all of that. And little kids, you see them doing that. I think with actors in particular, it's getting back to that original impulse to play and transform that makes it, um, it but a lot of stuff gets in the way. I mean, life gets in the way and, and how you're raised gets in the way and things you've been taught to behave yourself and get in line and, all that stuff gets in the way, and, and the people where it never got in the way are the people who have an open, open door. You know, I say that with people. I can help you if, if the door is open. If the door is closed, I mean, nobody can, can help you. So is that why with uh, comedic timing as well, certain stand-ups, let's say Robin Williams, it was, it was like some other being was inside of him. Yeah. I mean... I think it is. I think it is. I think it is. That's a really good question, and I don't really have a nuanced answer for it. But I do think I can remember when I was a little kid making people laugh and not knowing why they were laughing, but I knew how to do it. But I wasn't sure why they were laughing, but I knew how to be funny. Where does that come from? I have no idea. But it was... Uh, I told this story yesterday to a, a student of mine who came by for a for a session, and I was talking about um, one of the things. I will not have a second book, but if I ever did have a second book, it would be called Worlds and Faces because I think that's what TV and film is. It's all about faces and worlds because everybody at the professional level is pretty talented. So it's not about that. It's about where do you fit? Where does this fit into that world? SWAT is a world, NCIS is a world, Downton Abbey is a world, they're all different. Where do you fit? It's all about fit. So I told her this story, is, this comes back to your question about comedic timing. I had an audition for uh, Seinfeld, and I'd never been up for that show, and I always wanted to be on that show because it's such a cool show. It's still a cool show. It's still very funny. And I had this line, uh, first of all, I walked in the room, and, and Jerry Seinfeld was in the room, which kind of freaked me out. Um, it was exciting, you know, because uh, I love him. I still love him. I think he's brilliant. 
And my first, I'm trying, I'm working for the New York Mets and I'm trying to get George to get himself fired so he can come work for the Mets. And my first line is, and it's not, I don't, to me it's not a funny line, but I, the first line is, George, the Mets need a new head of scouting and we think that someone might be you. That's the line. It's not really a funny line. I said that line and Seinfeld almost fer- fell off the chair laughing. And I thought, what just happened here? That's interesting. Somehow I fit in that world. He thought that was funny for whatever reason. I don't know. I can't quantify it, but it's, I think it's just genetic when you talk about Robin Williams or any of these other brilliant uh, comedic minds. I do think it is kind of just, you know, when you're a little kid, you become the class clown, you become the one who entertains everybody. And if you continue to be crazy enough, you become, you become a stand-up comedian. I, and that scene is on your reel, correct? I think it is. Yeah, it's very funny. I, you're with you're in a di- at the diner. Yes, yeah, uh huh. Famous Love diner. It. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. We'll have a link to your reel uh, down below. Oh, cool. People Thank can you. look at it. Why do you say that desire cannot be taught? Desire for success is different than desire. I think desire to be great, to be an artist, to be outstanding at what you do is very different than the desire for success. And I think it's, look, there are people who are just inordinately ambitious right out of the chute. They just are. I, um, I don't think it can be taught. I think what you, I've, I've always said this, and I think it's true. I can't teach talent we talked about. I can't teach desire. But what I really teach well, I think, is a strategy for the scene you're working on right now, for the project that that's a part of, for your career and for your life. If I don't want to get too life coachy about this, but it's kind of all the same. It's understanding that your innate talent and desire is just there or it's not. I mean, I have run across people who are very talented and don't have the fire in the belly to be successful. They don't care about it. They're not, it's, they're perfectly willing to be just in the mix. I, I taught a, I taught, the first time I ever taught anything, this was at the Hawaii International Film Festival a long time ago. And it was a fantastic gig because you got to spend two weeks in Hawaii. And I taught a week-long workshop for actors. And there were a number of actors there who live there and, and all that. And there was an older gentleman um, who was auditing. He wasn't part of the actual workshop, but he was, we, we had people who were auditing and all that and just to sort of hang out and be and see it and observe it and all that. And at the end of the week, he came up to me with some questions and he said, um, you know, I was an actor. I said, oh yeah. And I said, you're very familiar looking, so I probably have seen you. And, and yeah, he said, I was an, I was an actor and in, in, did some TV and a little bit of movies and uh, he was older and had, I guess had retired. And he said, you know, he said, I just thought if I can just make a living at this. He said, and that's all I ever did was just, just make a living at it. And I took that to mean, and he, and he, this is, is what he meant, that he never sets his sights high enough. He was just satisfied being in the mix, just satisfied being on set, just satisfied getting that call that he got a call back. He wasn't, he didn't aim high enough and if you aim up here, you might get here. But if you aim here, you're going to get there. 
you're going to get. So that desire, I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. I mean, a lot of it's cultural. Depends on what culture you're from, and and you know whether it's uh, a minority culture or you know like in my case, I'm Jewish, and it was just always imbued in us that you've got to be, you've got to be better than everybody because you're going to be judged harsher, in a more harsh way, and all that. So I don't know. That was you learn at your on your daddy's knee, I guess. What if we take the flip side, and that is someone who is maybe not that talented but is incredibly ambitious, whether it's cultural or they want to show those folks back in high school or whatever it is. How, how do you reconcile that? Someone who keeps trying and banging their head against a wall, but it's just not there. Well, um, how do they reconcile that? I, I don't know. I, I do think that um, talent is a commodity. Talent, everybody at the professional level is talented enough to be in, you know, the rookie or 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 nine one one or some of these kind of B minus network shows. I don't mean to insult anybody, but you know they're not the same as the streaming shows. There's much higher quality, so they're talented enough. And there are people who are what I call like mono talents. They have like they do one thing, but they do it really well, and it's it's commoditized, and they become a go to person for that one thing. And you've seen people. We've all seen people. You go, oh, it's that same guy. He's doing the same. You know, he's he's the, he's the security guard. He's always talking into this and whatever. And a lot of it is just is. I don't really know. I mean, there are people um, who are who are. I, I, there's an actor. I won't mention him because uh, I won't mention him. But uh, wildly ambitious. I mean, I have never in my life been around anybody where every breath of every day was in the furtherance of their ambitions. It was breathtaking. And this person succeeded greatly. Talented, absolutely talented, but um, I think that, you know, it, it leads to kind of a, not kind of, it leads to kind of an unbalanced life when you are that way. And I don't think People who are that way can't really control that. That's just how they're wired. I, I think a lot of this comes down to how you're wired. I mean, I interview people frequently uh, to be in our studio, and I don't take everybody because I don't want to and I don't need to. So I, I really, I don't know any other way to do it. I just say, hey, let's let's meet, or now it's kind of on Zoom, like we meet on Zoom. And tell me what you're after, and let's see if we're rowing the boat in the same direction. And if we're not, you won't hurt my feelings. So the people I have, pardon me, in my circle of, of students and colleagues and clients are all people I've curated, let's say. And so I, I get uh, consistently, I'll say, people will say, it's such an incredible group of people, just a remarkable group. I said, yeah, it is because I take the time to get to know them a little bit and not everybody gets who wants in gets in exactly. So um, I forget the original question. What was your original question? Uh, about desire being oh. taught, but I, I love what you're saying here and that not everybody that comes in to audit the class or be part of your class is a fit. How can you tell somebody really wants it? Um, I don't know how I can describe that, but you, the first thing I will do is um, I, I have 
I have two exercises I do with uh, new new students, and sometimes I do it when I'm meeting people to to be involved in the studio. One is something that's standard, and one is something I made up. And the one that's standard is I'll say, uh, show me something, whether you want to do it live or on Zoom, or you've taped it, show me something you're really good at. I want to say something that you're really good at, that you think this shows everything that I really want to show. And most actors have something like that in their back pocket, a piece they did in a play or, or a speech in a movie or something they did in a class that they think this kills. So that's what you can do. That's what you can, I want to see what you can do. Now, on the other hand, I want to see who you are. So I said, I want you to write something. And a lot of actors kind of roll their eyes. They don't like to write. But um, I said, I want to know what you know. I want to know what you know. What do you know? I want to know what you know about uh, how you get up in the morning and how you like your coffee and, and traffic and your dog and, and start every sentence with, this is what I know. I know that, boom, 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 boom. And I said, and don't edit it. Just write it. Stream of consciousness. I don't need to know anything you don't want anyone else to know. I don't need to know anybody's deepest, darkest secrets. This is not therapy. This is your worldview. I want to see your worldview and I want to see what you can do. What you can do and who you are. Who you are always trumps the worldview in film and television. Personal identity art form. That's, it's, it's maybe always been that way, but it's more that way now. It's How else do you explain... Certain actors, I, I've used, I use it in my, in my TED talk, I use Seth Rogen as an example, right? I mean, I think he's great, but he does that. He does, he's the best Seth Rogen he could possibly be. And no one else does that. And his, because he has a worldview, because you know immediately when he comes into some sort of transaction in the scene, you know immediately how he's going to respond because his worldview is so clear. Most actors don't have that because we're trained to be somebody else. We're trained to be, um, you're, in fact, you're applauded to be, you know, oh, I didn't even see you there. I didn't recognize you. That's not what film and TV is about. And that was kind of the, the genesis of my deciding eventually that I was going to try to teach was to sort of try to teach to that perspective because I didn't see anybody else doing that. And so when someone comes in and they do the writing exercise mm -hmm. of, of this is what I know, um, I know I like my coffee with cinnamon, I know that I um, like to wake up and check Twitter, mm -hmm. so, you know, if, if they seem reluctant to do that exercise, do you see that maybe there's not a willingness? Yeah, sometimes. Or when we were, we're still, we're back in person now. We were on Zoom for a couple of years, as I'm sure you know. And uh, when we were in person before, it was like, first of all, you're coming in. You don't know anybody in this class. You're speaking about how you see the world around you in front of a room full of strangers out loud. That's risky. It's a little risky. That's why I say, don't I don't want to know anything you don't want anyone else to know. I don't need to know. No one needs to know that. I just need to know how you see the things, how you, how you interact with the world around you. And so, yes, people will get, they're either like, they pull back from it, or, they, or they're trying to be clever and it's not really clever, or they're, uh, they find themselves getting caught up in it and getting emotional because, and, I, and I'll often say, now, did you learn anything about yourself that you didn't know before you did that? And some of them say, yeah, that was really interesting because we know these things, but to actually write them out and speak them 
is different. And that's, I mean, that's the only time I do that. And it's, it's tricky. It, it is tricky. And this, there's a whole, um, in all of training of artists, whether it's acting, music, there is a teacher-student relationship that's tricky. You know, the, the whole guru thing, which is very prominent, which I really abhor. Uh, so you have to be super careful, even more so today with our, our world today. You just have to be super careful that you're not um, leading them into territory they don't want to go into. And I make that, I make that very clear. And, and knock on wood, I've never really had anything that was like a train wreck with that exercise. What about when one thinks they know themselves, but then they are in a room of strangers with something quite innocent revealing about themselves, no deep, dark secret, and the room shows them they're not who they thought they were? Does that happen? That's not, um, I don't think it's ever happened like that. I used to also do an exercise, though, that might play into that um, idea. I would say... I haven't done this one for a long time. Somebody would walk up on stage, say their name, and uh, I don't know, I would give them a sentence like, you know, hi, my name is Michael Laskin, I'm whatever. Give them something to say. And everybody would have to instantly write down three words. Like, what did you get from that? From that blink of an eye thing. It's that blink of an eye thing that is so... We have that in, in, in life. I mean, somebody comes to my door to deliver something or, or a friend or, or a relative. We have an immediate human reaction to that person. It's the same thing on screen. It's exactly the same thing on screen. So when I started acting, I didn't under, when I started acting on film and television, I didn't understand that at all. And I was not good. I, I was not good initially. I really wasn't. I mean, I had to learn that it's a different thing entirely. And that began my education toward what I'm trying to teach now. To show yourself, you have to know yourself? What does this mean? Let me, let me circle back on something to answer that. Um, I was trained in the theater, and it was the serious theater. And I'm not making fun of that, but it was. I mean, we thought we were going to change the world doing theater. Um, it was a real passion for me and still is I, I i love it and i i do it still do it occasionally but you don't have to show yourself in the theater you show the character you show your version of that character but in film and television you have you you can't escape showing yourself and the minute you try to escape it, you look terrible. I, as I said, my, my first few TV things that I watched were just, I thought, at least to my standards, I thought were really bad. I thought, oh, I have a lot to learn. And so to know, your, you know, you can't, when I teach, because I do, I, you can't teach someone about their identity. Uh, I'm not talking about identity, sexual identity. I'm just talking about personal identity. Um, you can't teach that but you can curate it a little bit. And I do think, I always say, you know, lead, lead and examine life. Do something that's outside of this acting stuff. Plant a garden, refinish a piece of furniture, do something tangible, do something and, and read and, and create uh, 
heroes for yourself or I always say artistic heroes they don't have to be actors or they can be musicians they can be art visual artists so to know yourself I think when you get older and I am older uh I'm really old uh you I think it's a natural process you get to know yourself better if if you're open to that some people just aren't some people never know themselves I'm not talking about those people but you know the, the more enlightened self-examined person and you naturally get to the truth about you later in life you just and as an actor uh that it it kind of becomes easier because you don't have to push it forward you don't have to push it out it's just there it just lives with you but when you're younger you don't have any of that you're trying to impress you're trying to be something bigger greater grander uh you're trying to you're just constantly trying to figure out who you are i mean some people look some people never know who they are some people know who they are the minute they're born i mean that there's there's a wide spectrum of that but i do think to particularly if we're talking about and we are talking about acting and film acting in particular i think you do have to know who you are and and it's it's um again hard to hard to point to to a finger to it but there are certain people who have qualities like we were just the other, uh the other moment talking about Tom Cruise and Will Smith people like that Tom Cruise who I happen to think is a really good actor right kind of an unpopular opinion in some circles but I think he's very talented so do I yeah um it's who is he I don't really know who he is but I do know that he is dead certain about everything. He is certain, he harbors no doubt. And that's a really attractive trait. We all want to be like that. That's a classic hero trait. So whether he's really like that, I'm not sure, but he's awfully good at convincing me that he is. There's there's a there's a a certitude about what he does. And to me that's kind of what makes a star and there aren't too many stars left in in the film world. So that core essential quality of in his case dead certitude you know has no doesn't question doesn't not that he doesn't question things but he doesn't question what he has to do that's so attractive to watch as you know if you're if you're into hero stories and 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 heroic stuff i don't know if you saw the latest uh, top gun uh not yet it's great i mean it is what it is it's 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 a thrill ride but it's great he's great in it and um he combines that with a very high level of skill and so yeah he's i mean i i don't i don't never worked with him don't know him i know people who have worked with him and speak very highly of him sure. in a work environment so i mean he's but there's so few people like that i think because the system we have now it's it's all about imperfect. He's about perfection. He presents a perfect version of um of himself in a way. We are much more interested in imperfection, I think, as viewers. We we want to see kind of the dirty messy stuff. We want to see the doubts. We want to see people having crises. And so the classic hero who has no doubt and who who knows what he or she has to do is so rare. today. But I think it's also like super attractive and I think it's perennial. I just think it's great. 
and even other roles that he was in that weren't sort of the Top Gun Maverick roles, uh, you know, uh, All the Right Moves, Risky Business. Mm -hmm. um, still, he had something in him where you were just so drawn, uh, the firm. And yeah. at oh, times yeah. he, he was being gaslit during the, and then he figured out, okay, wait a minute. Exactly. And, and you went along on that ride with him. And yes, he does have this sort of unshakable where you're like, man, I wish I could have yeah, that. Yeah, he's going to get it done. Right. Tom's going to get it done. And he has integrity, yeah. too. He has integrity in these roles. Like, his his character's always... In. Well, and let's not forget Les Grossman in Traffic Thunder. Have you seen Traffic Thunder? I haven't. <laughs> that, was a, that was a complete um, anomaly. He plays this insane studio executive named Les Grossman. It's crazy. And you go like, oh, you can do that. That's interesting. Right, I've heard of parts of the movie. Yeah, yeah. I would now not, I'll have to go. Not watch a it. movie you could make today in no, a politically no, no, correct no. climate. You could not make that movie. Right, I've seen the trailer. Funny. Yeah, yeah. Right. What's the difference between an actor and an authentic actor? Um, an authentic actor is using him or herself as the prism through which we see the character. Not unlike the story I told uh, earlier about. The woman who said, I just pretend that what's happening is happening to me. I, I interpret authenticness, authenticity. Authenticness, is that a word? I don't even know. Sure. It is now. I okay, just made great. It I interpret that as being something that is self-based. In other words, we want to know how you react to this situation. It's personal. It is, it is personal to you. You're not representing your... You're not transforming, you're informing, if that makes sense. Transformative acting, the kind that Meryl Streep sometimes gets to do, and Daniel Day-Lewis and Anthony Hopkins, these are all incredible actors. Most actors don't get a chance to do that work because they just don't. There isn't that much of it, and it, it goes to those kind of folks. So we basically have to play a truthful, dynamic version of who we are to some extent, to a large extent most of the time. And that is, the more you can lean into who you are, now it has to be mated, pardon me, it has to be mated to a skill set that, that works, and that is um, professional and, and, and correct. And that's where I see, I do see a lot today, a diminution in that, in sort of basic skill set. I have actors where I will say, I'm not actually understanding what you're saying. Like, it's not clear. It's not, it, vocally it's not clear. Do you know what that word means? No. Well, there's a dictionary. There's a thing called Google. Look it up. I want to, you know, I want you to be, there's, a, there's, there's no lack of reality and authenticity. There is a lack of imagination and curiosity. Not, it's not rampant, but I see that. I see people who are incurious and don't want it. They just think, oh, if I just behave naturally, it'll be cool. It'll be like, that'll be, no, no, that's not it. That's just the base level of realistic behavior is not acting. Realistic behavior is just behavior. Acting has a strategy. You have to figure out, the actor has to figure out where the scene's going. If, if the scene is an aria, what's the high note and why? Where does it change? What's the pre, you know, this is how I work with auditions, which I do a lot of. I do a lot of private audition coaching. And 
I've done thousands of these now, so I've figured it out and I've learned myself. You know, you have to sometimes teach yourself like, oh, I'm not doing that. I have to figure out how to do that. But like with an audition, you get whatever you get, you get six or eight pages, two or three scenes, whatever, and no time to really work on it. Um, these are standard things, but they may not be standard to, to you or your listeners. I say, what's the moment before? What just happened before this scene? How does that inform how it starts? So it has to have a dynamic beginning. It has to be in the flow of what just happened. You may not have the screenplay. You may not even know that. So you have to kind of make it up and figure out what's the tone of this piece? What's the genre of this piece? What makes sense? What could be the moment before this happens? Then where does the scene change and why? And how do you mark that? So those are all like strategy things that you have to be well-trained to understand and most people are, but you do get, I do get some people that are just, they, they don't get that. Or, you know, I, I did a perfect example of this is I did a guest star a couple of years ago on Big Little Lies, which was a fantastic show. And because it was a David Kelly show, uh, who's one of the elite writer creators in television, I mean, Ally McBeal and all kinds of the shows. I know, having worked, I worked on a lot of Stephen Bochco shows back in the day, and you don't change a syllable. You don't change. You could have the greatest take in the world. If one word is off, they don't print it. Got to do it again. So same thing I thought with David Kelly, and uh, who I had worked for, but a long time previous. So I was encouraged that the director, this wonderful British woman named Andrea Arnold, who directed the season that I was in, she really wanted the, the, the first AD, this, this woman who was the first assistant director said, now just on my first day on the set, she said, I just want you to know that Andrea doesn't say action and she doesn't say cut. I said, oh, well, what does she say? Well, she's probably gonna want you to talk your way into the scene, into the, the flow of the beginning of the scene. And when she feels you're in the right place where the scene begins, she'll probably say something like, okay, off you go which is exactly what she did. It was so liberating because usually it's like action and everyone like tenses up and it was a fantastic way to work. And so I've, I, I stole that from her in a way. I mean, it's not an original idea, but to really talk your way, particularly if like now actors are taping stuff on the, in their homes for auditions. And so I said, let's improv into the scene just cut out the stuff that's not on the page when you actually edit it, but then you're in the flow of what just happened. And that's really, screen acting is so different because you're playing little pieces of a pie. You have a big pie with all these pieces and you're playing this little piece and this little piece and this little piece and they're out of sequence. So you really have to figure out where they fit. And I, the other thing that I do that, I don't, it's my idea, I don't know if it's an original idea, so, you know, title each, if you get two or three scenes, title each scene, like each scene if it's, as if it's a movie, as if it's a book. Give it a title. You can't play the title, but it puts it in context. We have to understand the story. When you're working on stage, you're doing the whole story every night from beginning to middle to end. When you're working on film, you're doing a little tiny piece of the story here and a little tiny piece of the story there. So you do have to understand the story. What is the story that you're telling? What is the story about? And it's frankly much harder. I mean, it's way harder. It's not an instinctive thing. It's something you do have to learn and you have to practice and get better at. And you're doing different angles of it. Let's do the take from this side and... Yeah, it's, it's quite 
I have always found it to be harder. Acting on stage, for me anyway, is easy. It's scary, <laughs> but it's easy because once the lights come up, I'm in control of the evening. I'm in control of what I have to do. I know where this has to go. And I have a working technique. You develop a technique on stage that you also, you develop a different kind of technique for film. But the purpose of having a, a reliable technique is it establishes a level below which your work doesn't go. So it's a baseline level of, of that. And so when I started in film, and I have referenced a couple of times now how awful I thought I was at the beginning, it's because I was trying to take the stage technique and, and somehow make that work. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I had to sort of figure out how to be more present and how to be how to work in close-up and, and how to not be presenting, but how to be in it and be alive in it and pretend that what's happening is happening to me, as my former student said. So that is what that is. And it's for some people it's easy. For people who don't have that formal training, it's kind of easier. But if you have that training and background, it's a shift. It's a shift. So when you saw yourself, whether it was on tape or whatever, Besides, you said not maybe being present. What else? I mean, did you feel like you were acting, yes. quote unquote? Okay. I did uh, the first show I ever did was a show. It was a big hit in the eighties. A show called Heart to Heart. Oh yes. Yes, Heart to Heart. Yes, it was Heart to Heart. Loved it. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. I got this. I came to L.A. within six weeks. I got an agent. Within two more weeks, I got my first job. I didn't know what I was doing. I was lucky. Very lucky. And I show up on the set, and there's a lot of waiting around, and a lot of, you know, like, I'm, I'm used to, like, let's go, let's go, let's go. You know, hours and hours of waiting around for your scene. And I didn't know at that time how to sort of um, manage my time down, which is a big thing for actors, because you've got to stay in the zone, but you've got to manage that time so that you're not, so that you're ready at a moment's notice. So there was an older actor whose name I don't remember on the same episode guy I'd seen in like a hundred westerns and an older guy. And I said, hey, this is my first job and you know, I'm not getting anything from the director. He said, listen, kid, <laughs> if he's not telling you anything, you're doing great. Don't worry about it. So then I watched it six or eight weeks later when I was on with my wife and everyone back home, my family back in Minnesota. And I was just mortified. I thought, I look I'm like one of those bad TV actors I used to kind of look down my nose at. And that was like a big aha moment. And I was really, I was really motivated by vanity. I don't want to be that bad again. I got to be better than that. I was, it was like vanity. We all have that. And so I went, no, that's, and so I don't know how it happened. But I, well, I do kind of know how I found that the first time I was working on a show with the great actor, the late great Jack Warden, who uh, you kids at home look him up. He was an amazing yeah. actor. Yeah, W A R D E N. Correct. Right, right. Uh -huh. And Jack was just—I—I—I I, I was recurring on the show, and I just wanted to hang around him because I thought he was such a great. Sure. We never talked about acting. He would always talk about baseball and sports, and he was, he was a great guy. And he was mentoring me without knowing he was mentoring me. And we were talking about, we were sitting, I was sitting in my chair, he was sitting in his chair, the set's over here, they just shot his close-up, we're talking about uh, whatever, baseball, the weather, something. 
And the director said, oh, Jack, you know what? We, I'm sorry, we, we, you are gonna be in this shot in the back. I'm gonna need you for this shot. And they just done his close up. No problem, he gets up, goes over to his place on the set. And I'm watching him and I'm thinking, that's the same guy I was just talking to. There's none of this. There's none of this performance. There's none of this, it's just like, boom. He's just there. The same person, no difference. I thought, oh. And I, I at lunch, I sat and had lunch with him because I took any chance I could to hang around him. And I said, I noticed this. I said, tell me if I'm crazy, but I noticed that and it really blew my mind how, I guess relaxed is too, uh, is not a strong enough word, but how focused and how centered he was. He said, yeah, it took me about 20 years to figure that out. Okay. I went, okay, I get it. But I, that was like a big aha moment for me because I was getting a master class from, from a, a great actor. Right. He didn't know he was giving me a master class, but he was. And so that was, I think that was, as I think back on it, that was kind of the beginning of my knowing, oh, it could just, I'm enough. I'm actually enough. I don't have to, I don't have to push. I don't ha I'm enough. But the I that you present, the, the, the you that you present has to be interesting. Then we go back to the idea of an examined life and being a full human being and not just being consumed by ambition and craziness and show business and all that stuff. So anyway, there's that story. What are your best tips for boosting confidence? Confidence is this thing that you have to maintain in, in a business that is designed to undermine your confidence at all turn, at every turn. Um, I think, I just was actually talking to somebody yesterday who was having, um, crisis is too strong a word, but she's at a crossroads about something. And I said, you know, here's, your pro here's the problem we're talking about. I said, I think you need to do something about that problem, the dilemma, every day. Do something every day, even if it's 20 minutes. Even if you feel like you're not making progress, you're repeating yourself, you're digging yourself a hole, do something to get at that issue every day. Because confidence is so fragile. There are people who are confident for no apparent reason. You know, there are. They just have it. And they can't be dissuaded. And God, that's a gift. That's a fantastic gift. Most of us who are mere mortals are not, are not like that. And so, uh, you know, I, back in the day when we used to go in for in-person auditions, which I don't know if that's ever coming back, but you'd, you know, you'd arrive at the audition, you'd pull up to the gate of the studio, and you'd say, I'm gonna meet so-and-so in this building, and here's my appointment. They say, oh, you're not on the list. <laughs> okay, so they got to call the office. So that's confidence number one, going down the tubes. I'm not on the list. Then you get on the list. Oh, yeah, yeah, they've got you. So you got to park in that structure. It's like four blocks away. So you got to go park in that structure. And you're wearing a suit because it's a, it's a role that requires that. And it's like 100 degrees out. And you got to walk the four blocks in the blazing sun. And then you get there. And by the time you get there, you're a mess. It's so, it is designed, it's like a minefield to undermine your confidence. And so um, I'll tell you uh, the best story that ever happened to me, and it has to do with this issue. I was, um, I was, getting, I was getting out of the shower one morning. I get a call from my agent and they said, can you be 
in Century City at 10 o'clock, and it was, uh, or whenever it was, it was, I literally just stepped out of the shower and it was in, I live in the Valley, I live in Studio City, it's rush hour in the morning. I said, well, he said, it's a movie, it, somebody must have fallen out, you're next on the list, I don't even know what it is, just go, there'll be sides for you there to look at. So I'm like, getting ready, <laughs> I'm getting in the car and I'm trying to get through traffic and park and, and, and talk about confidence, I don't know what's going on. Right? So I get there, I see my sides, I look at them, I read through it once, and the casting director says, Michael, are you ready? I went, sure. I just said yes. I think that's a big part of confidence. I just said, yes, I'm ready. I wasn't ready. I wasn't even remotely ready. But I said yes. So I went into this room, and again, another big room. I didn't know anything about this project. First person I see is Robert Duvall. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, okay, this is, what? what is this? I don't even know what this is. I have this long scene. And in those days, they didn't expect you to be off book. You could still have the script with you. Now everyone has to be, you know, off book, letter perfect, all that stuff. But I had the script and I literally had just gotten it. So I get through to the, I get to the end. It's very quiet in the room. And the director, whose name was Billy Graham, by the way. Oh. William Graham, a fantastic guy. He looked at me and said, that was perfect. I said, really? <laughs> I said, that's not a word we hear too often in rooms like this. He said, no, that was perfect. Great. I said, well, okay, thanks guys. And I left. I'm thinking, what the heck just happened? I didn't have time to have my confidence shaken. I just had to get it done. I said yes. And I did it, and the instincts we talked about earlier just kicked in. I had a take on it. Oh, but the other thing was, it was an Israeli character, so I had to have an accent. Happened to be that my kids at the time, when they were young, had an Israeli nanny. And so I was very familiar with it, and I'm good with accents. I was very familiar with it. So I did it, and they called back, I don't know, a week or so later. They want to have you back, if they call back. And I'm thinking, oh, man. If I go back, I'm going to probably blow it. So, no, I'm not going to go back. I, I was a crazy decision. I said to my agent, make up something, lie, say I'm working. I'm available for the job, but not for the callback. I don't know what possessed me. And uh, I got it. It was a, it was oh, a, wow. it was a, a Showtime movie with Robert Duvall. We shot in South America. It was an incredible project. Movie wasn't that great, but it was a great experience. And working with him was a great experience. But it was that level of not knowing enough to be scared, to be frightened, to let it get in your head. We all get in our heads. Actors get it, but people do. Human beings do. It's, it's, it's. So actors will get in their heads about something, and we feel we have to be perfect. We have to be... I'm working with somebody now who's, who's kind of new at this, but she's really extraordinary, and I've had to sort of cure her of being a perfectionist. I said, We're not, I'm not interested if you miss that one word. It doesn't matter. If the take is great, if you like it, if we like it, that's what we're going to go with. And so once you free yourself of perfectionism, uh, I think that lets, opens the door for a little bit more confidence. When I work with, I've worked with a lot of people who are dancers and athletes in particular, who are fantastically good for acting because they are disciplined, 
They know they have to have training. They know they have to know what they're doing. They can't just wing it and just, oh, I'm feeling it this way. They have to, they actually know that they need coaching and all that stuff. And so, but they are perfectionists. Dancers and athletes are perfectionists when they transition into acting. And so it's, a, it's just getting them confident enough to know that they can be imperfect and it's cool. You know, sometimes when an actor drops a line, like right now, you go, oh, what just happened? That's interesting. You know, sometimes when you think, oh, what's my line? What's my line? What's my next line? But you've, you've had a pause. It lets us in. We go, oh, what's going on? That's cool. What? So it, it's, I, I do think confidence is directly related to a sense of perfectionism. And if you have to be perfect, your confidence is going to be undermined at all times. If you accept the fact that imperfection, as long as it shows fidelity to the story, to the script, and to your character, is fine, it's much easier. And it's kind of what we're after anyway, I think. We talked about Tom Cruise earlier mm -hmm. and sort of this, this composite of someone that has unshakable confidence and is going to get the job done. But then you think about a character like a Paul Giamatti or Ileana Douglas, yeah. who they they show in facial expressions, micro, you know, like a little bit of doubt, and then we like them even more. Of course, yeah. Because they're like, oh, I see me in that character. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Paul Giamatti is a great example because he's just got that face. He's got that face that is only and the voice, and he's very good. He's very very good. But as I said earlier, I do think that faces and worlds. I was telling this young woman yesterday who I'm working with who's got some confidence issues. I said, you know, if you think about it that way, like what world do you fit in? You don't fit in every world. I don't fit in every world. What world do you fit in? And I didn't get, you didn't get that role because there's a lot of reasons you don't get a role. You're, maybe you didn't do a good audition. Maybe your agent isn't significant enough to really fight for you. Maybe uh, you're too old for that character because he or she has to be matched to another person who's a little too young, a little young. There's all kinds of reasons. And most of them are optical. Most of them are like how you look. And, and so again, we get back to that blink of an eye thing. So particularly with self-tapes now, I say, you know, you've got to, you have to somehow be there, present, and right at the first frame. Absolutely, the first 10 seconds are the most important. I had a, a woman who is a, um, um, I won't name her, she's, but she's a very significant casting person, head of casting at, at a network, who came to my class. She was great. She was, and somebody asked, and so like if there's a lead role in a, in a television series, I don't know how many people are submitted. It's thousands, probably. And then they get down, they winnow it down, and then Maybe she sees the last 50 that have gotten through the callback process. Maybe it's even a smaller number than that. I don't know. And somebody asked, how do you, uh, like, what's the process after that? And she literally took out her phone. She went, and everybody gasped. Because at that point, she knows everybody's good. Who's the right fit? Who looks right? It's kind of that. I just cast this pilot that I produced, and it was like we had people, because we had a very good casting director, so we didn't see 
people who weren't good. We all, everybody we saw it for the major parts was very good. So it wasn't about that. It was about like, oh, she's great. Doesn't fit. It doesn't work for this reason or that reason. So it's a lot of that. It's a lot of that. And, and, and that sort of uncertainty and that capriciousness, it's very capricious as a profession. And it's kind of borderline abusive as a profession, to be perfectly honest, particularly now when an actor gets a 12-page, three-scene self-tape with 24 hours to turn around, and he or she has a work shift that night, and they have to memorize it, and they have to film it, and they have to upload it, and it has to be great. Come on, that's crazy. It's crazy, but it is what, that's the new normal. That is actually the normal now. They're trying to, uh, they've changed that a little bit in the UK, and I, I think it's smart. They've given people, they, they, they send all these, these tapes out that are, it's impossible to do what they're asking for some people. You know, 12, 13 pages, when a show itself is 60 pages, you're asking people to film a quarter of the show they, overnight, and it has to be great. In, in the UK, they're doing a thing, they uh, four page maximum with a four day minimum. And then if it's a six, then it's a six page, they have a whole formula so that it's not, otherwise it just gets to be crazy. And it's a good point. You said a work shift. Most actors have yeah. flexible jobs that they're doing at night and things. Yeah. And so, yeah, you can't be totally it's, put it's together. It's become, that aspect of it has become harder because it's not personal anymore. You're not walking into the room and developing a, maybe a relationship with that office that you've been in six, seven times. They like you. They keep bringing you back. There's an energy in the room. There's a person-to-person -person energy that simply can't be replicated on Zoom. But that's what it is right now. That's, that's the world we're living in, and it is what it is. I'm glad to be on the 17th hole <laughs> with that. When you were given a script, do you read the entire screenplay or only the parts that you're playing? Um, interesting question. Depends on the time. I mean, if you have a very rapid turnaround for the audition, you, you may not be able to read the whole screenplay. Um, you, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a, an old actor expression where they go, I won't say the, the swear word, because BS, 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 my line, BS, 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 my line. Um, De Niro? I, I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know who said that, but... Uh, <laughs> I like to read the script if I have time. Sometimes they don't send you the script, by the way. Sometimes the script's embargoed and you don't have a chance to read it. If it's a show that's on the air, you can watch an episode or two and get a feel for it, for the world and the tone and the genre of the show. But ideally, if you could read the script, yeah. I, I coached somebody yesterday who, it was the most weird audition. We. She comes to me to help explain this stuff. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm lost with you. And they didn't send her the script. I said, so we just have to do a little educated guessing because I don't really know what this scene here means exactly in the larger tapestry of, of the story. So, but yeah, in, in an ideal world, if you have the time and they give you the script, if it's a movie, they usually give you the script. If it's an episodic television show, you generally get just your sides, your scenes, and you get, uh, you have the opportunity to watch an episode or two if you have time to do that. That helps a lot. 
that that definitely helps a lot because then you kind of know what is what the world is that you're entering. I did a thing. Oh my, this is such an embarrassing story, but I'll, I'll tell it because I didn't. I was a snob at one point, um, and um, I booked a guest star on Melrose Place, the original Melrose Place. I'd never watched the show. I shot the show. I never watched my episode because I just it's, I thought, oh, I'm above Melrose Place. I'm not that you know, stupid of me. Anyway, did you ever watch that show? I was an extra on it. Okay, so you remember the set <laughs> yeah. with the pool and all uh -huh. that stuff. Yep. So I show up the first day of work. Uh, second AD is taking me to wherever the dressing room or wardrobe area is, and I see the set and I go, wow, that's amazing. What is this? <laughs> and she said to me, this is Melrose Place. I went, aha, I'm an idiot. I mean, it was so embarrassing because I didn't know the show. I, I booked it and I shot it, but that was a really stupid move. On my part, I mean, it was arrogant. It was, it was, it was a bad, it was a bad moment. But you have to understand, you know. So to get back to your original question of, do you read the script? You have, however, whether it's the script or watching something online now, which when Melrose Place was on, we didn't have that. I don't right. think it was on. But you, your job is to figure out what world you're entering. So if you can read the script, fantastic. If you don't get it, you've got to figure it out other ways. And that's, it comes down to that. It comes down to, to the world that you're entering. More and more now shows are um, a particular world. Yellowstone is a world. I mean, it's an incredible world. And all these shows. And so you really do have to understand uh, what the transaction is. What, what your part in that transaction is. But yeah, if you can read the script, great. But you know, reading, reading a full script for a movie, that takes an hour, hour and a half. Sometimes you don't have that time. You skim it or you get, you know, you'll get, when the audition comes in, you'll get a storyline, generally speaking. You'll get a storyline of what this is about. You'll get a character description. Sometimes they're useful, sometimes they're not because sometimes the person who writes them is, is the third assistant who may or may not know really in a granular way what they're what they're describing so and sometimes it's just educated guessing and it's easier in a way than it used to be because you can look at things and say oh or you can research that director or that writer you get an idea of of what it is you're entering into did you go back and watch that episode of, Mel should... of melrose <laughs> yeah it should be somewhere online i'm no. sure it is i've never watched no you it. haven't okay no yeah. it's all right i'm I'm good. Okay. I'm good. I don't need to see it. Okay. I'm sure it's fine. What is your process for breaking down a screenplay? Um, well, if I have the time, I obviously will read the whole screenplay. And I want to know, I want to know what the larger arc of the story is, first of all. I just want to know what this is. What is this story we're all telling? Breaking it down, um, for an actor is very different than breaking it down for like a director or a DP or somebody like that. Um, I think that my process is pretty external in a way. I will sort of, I had a epiphany when I was in college because they were teaching kind of method-based acting and I, 
I just didn't get it. I went, oh, no, this, I don't get this. This doesn't work for me. And I went into, I was doing some play, and I went into the costume shop, and I was looking for a jacket or a coat. And I found this coat, and I put it on, and I went, in a, and I watched myself in the mirror, and I went, oh, oh, that's the guy. So I found out that I work externally, and once the externals are in place, I can fill it in emotionally. But I need to know kind of the north, south, east, and west of the scene. Like, okay, there's the window, there's the door. I, I, I need to know physically, and whether it's evident in the script or whether it's just my imagination, uh, I kind of need to know that. That's me. That isn't necessarily the way to do it. That's the way I do it. I think everybody has a different technique. I think all roads lead to Rome. You just got to get to Rome. And everybody's different. And some people are very internal and very emotionally. I'm not. I, I, I fill that out later once I get the structure of it. And that's kind of a similar way that I worked when I worked in the theater in a, in a way as well. I, gotta, I have to find the structure of it. Once I feel confident in that, once I know the words, I have to know the words can't be thinking about the words, uh, then I feel I can fill it in. I can fill it in. But, you know, a lot of roles that one does aren't even emotionally that, you know, it's, they're functionary. You're, you're a lawyer and you're, and you're doing a courtroom scene and there isn't a tremendous amount of emotional stuff there. It's all functionary stuff to drive the plot forward. And you also have to understand that. Like a co-star role is generally that. It's somebody who they interview for one scene who tells you something about the murder suspect and then you never see them again, right? So you have to understand the function of the role. Those smaller roles are frankly harder because you have very few opportunities to really make um, impressions, wrong word, but to sort of establish who your character is. Um, and it's usually just, you know, if it's, it's all about casting. If I'm well cast, it makes perfect sense, and it's real easy for me to break it down and figure out where I have to be. I did a movie in 2021. The audition was entirely improv They said, these are the characters you're dealing with. This is your wife. This is your nephew. And it was a kind of a really good, really good film. It came, came out just great. Just won a big award up at Cinequest. But there was very little on the page. Very little on the page. It was like... Uh, it was like, a, it's about a family, it's about a death in the family, it's about um, problems re relating to money and finances and all that stuff, and there's, and it's a Jewish family, and there's like a, aunts and uncles, and they're like the Jewish Greek chorus. So they're kind of everywhere, they're in every scene, but there wasn't really a lot on the page. So how do you break that down? You kind of don't break that down. You're cast to be like, oh, he or she is the right person for that. Oh, you're playing my wife? Perfect. That looks great. We, you know, it makes sense, uh, chemistry-wise. But I couldn't. There was no way I could break that down because, you know, there were two or three scenes, but we were in many, many more scenes than that, and we uh, added dialogue that wasn't there as well. So uh, that's a whole different thing. I mean, the improv thing. I'm not trained in improv, but I like doing it as an exercise. It's fun and it's freeing. And it was fun to do an audition that way because I didn't have to memorize it. But how could I break down that script? I really couldn't. I just had to show up as that guy, you know? 
and trust and also trust that trust is the name of the movie by the way mm-hmm. and trust that um what you have is right and what and what you'll and you will you feed off of the other people in a bit in that case in particular because it really was this this six person ensemble of relatives who were in every scene and, and making everybody's life a little crazy so um the only danger with that is like uh padding it too much trying to make more of it than it is you got to be careful about that we we had uh one actor who shall remain nameless who was problematic that way but it's understanding the world it's understanding and, and how you break it down is it's different for every project i guess is the way i would i would understand that if it's two or three strong scenes where you have a definite thing to do you're you're the prosecuting attorney you're the social worker you're the doctor those are kind of functionary scenes that do carry an emotional uh weight if it's a good script. So I'm very word oriented. I mean that's the other thing. I'm extremely word oriented. I believe in literally being forensic with the words like and I will use this as a teaching technique. What's the most important word in that sentence and why? And there's usually a reason. And 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 it's like figuring out where where that where that lives i mean it's really important to be i mean that that was something that was really um imbued in me from working in the theater for many many years is the text is everything and so and in the theater you can't change a thing you cannot change a word so you have to work with what you have if the text isn't great you find a way to make it great that's your job is to make it better than it is that's the actor's job is to make bad writing be better than it appears to be. I mean sometimes I I coached an audition the other day and when we were done with this young woman did a great job I said it's better than they deserve you did a great job because sometimes that's what it is. So if we were to take the line I need to talk to you Michael. And you did that very well oh, by the way. Oh thank you. Let's say I'm your boss. Yes. And I've discovered that you're playing online poker. We've had the IT company come in. This is in. a great scene. I love this. <laughs> and so it's a sensitive issue and we don't want the other coworkers to know about it, but we want to keep you because we like you, but we think maybe he has a gambling problem. So I um what what would be the forensics of that sentence? It's a very simple sentence. Of I need to talk to you mm-hmm. if I'm playing that part? Well, either either I I'm the employee the giving or, or receiving. Okay. Yeah, right. So um it's what I call a change moment. That's a change moment in a scene. Blah 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 blah. Oh, by the way, I need to talk to you. Okay. Okay, can we have Sure. So, it's it's identifying change moments. Every time there's a change and there are even bad writing has change moments in it. Okay? So, like if you're watching television, if you got television on in the background and it's some local news broadcast and some person had something horrible happen to one of their children or you're hearing the the newscaster he's got the microphone and he's interviewing somebody and there's been something terrible happen and then all of a sudden it goes quiet and you go well, and that person's crying let's say or whatever that silence this is the one thing particularly theater actors have uh, I'm going to say have an issue with I can't generalize but we feel like we have to get to the next thing we have to get to the next thing and i'll just say find a place in there to just be quiet so that you let us in as soon as you're quiet and it has to be earned 
has to be earned in the scene. But if you like, if you said to me, uh, "What is the line? I, uh, we have to talk." What is the line you just gave me? I need to talk to you, Michael. Okay. Uh, what is that about? Do you want to come in my office? Uh, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll be right back. Right. So you fill it with pauses. You fill it with thinking. I used to do an exercise called thinking on film where basically I would say 30 seconds. I don't want you to say one word. I want you to have an idea. I want you to have something that just happened to you. It's either good or it's bad. You got a phone call that somebody just broke up with you. Whatever it is. I don't need to know what it is. You have a narrative in your head. You are allowed one physical gesture and no words for 30 seconds. Go. And it's fascinating because people go, people know. They may not know exactly what's happening, but they kind of know. And I said, don't overdo it. Don't pretend to be sad. Just, it's just here. It's just in your face and in your eyes and in your thinking. So I call it thinking on film. And you can think on film. And that's the beauty. You can, once you get to that point as a, as a practitioner of film and TV acting, when you can just think something and it, it's there. That's magic. I mean, because we always we're very I, I'm word oriented because that's how I was trained. But sometimes you have to leave that behind and just be moment oriented, be quiet for a second and let people in. So when you said um, about these functional roles that you're not playing necessarily Pacino in a courtroom scene, you might just be a corporate attorney who's confirming dates or something and, mm -hmm. and it's not where you're going to be over the top stealing the show. Right. And so people think maybe that that's what their function is or well, you have the role has a function within the pardon me within the story and that's generally on a role like that, pardon me, it's it's generally pretty clear what it is. There's generally not a lot of subtext unless uh, there's something else going on, but if it's just a functionary thing like legal stuff. I've done a lot of legal stuff. <laughs> and um, yes, I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on TV. <laughs> um, it's kind of easy because it's procedural. And the, the magic of it is that you let your, you just do it as you. You just do it. So whatever, your neutral is not neutral. My neutral is not neutral. No one's neutral is neutral. You come in with some core thing about who you are that kind of plays through everything. So even if you're doing a functionary role, a role that's just talking about uh, you know, some legal thing, whatever, whoever it is you are, and again, as I said before, this gets more complex and more interesting as you get older and you kind of are more at home with who you are, uh, that just is there. And so that's kind of what you were hired for, in a way, is to be, as I said earlier, a dynamic, truthful version of who you already are. So the lines are just, look, the, uh, that stuff, it's like, um, it's like a baked potato. You can put anything on a baked potato. You can put salsa, you can put cream, uh, cream cheese, you can put sour cream, you can put chives, but it's still a baked potato. The baked potato needs flavor added to it. That's kind of what we bring in a functionary role. We add flavor to the baked potato. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. 
Let's say you get a call right now from your agent mm -hmm. and uh, you have a big audition tomorrow. What's the call like? What happens? Well, uh, I'm not sure. What's the, well, first of all, I don't get a call. I get an email. Ah, okay. So yes. it's, not, it's not ring, ring? No, then... there's none of that anymore. It's all impersonal, I'm, okay. I'm afraid. Um, interesting because now you have to self-tape everything. So it's not like, oh, I have this audition. I'm going to go to Warner Brothers at 4 o'clock to this building, to this room. That, that doesn't happen anymore. I don't know if that will ever happen again. So you have to not only think, okay, I have to look at this. I also, in my case, and I don't know if everyone's like this, I, I go, do I want to do this? Is this something I really want to do? Because I don't care anymore. and I'm, I'm in a different place in my life. If I don't want to do it or if it doesn't feel right, I'll go, I'm going to pass on that. And they seem to be okay with that. But the first thing I do is that I freak out a little bit because I know there's a timeline. And I know that, oh, I have to drop everything and I have to get this done. Now, I don't tape at home because I'm not good at it. And I hire that out. I have a guy I go to. I pay him whatever it is, 40, 50 bucks. He does it. It's great. And I don't have to worry about that because that would drive me crazy. I'm not really good at that. So then I just really have to think about uh, what is this? How do I do this? How do I get off book for this? The timelines, as I said earlier, are very short. So I really have to decide whether I want to do it. When I was producing um, the pilot I produced this summer, I'm on set. We're out in San Dimas. It's like 105 degrees. So hot. And I get an email with a 14-page audition that was due the next day. I just said two things. I said, first of all, thank you. Second of all, can't be done uh, because I'm producing this thing and I'm on set. And lastly, I'm not sure 14 pages can be done in 24 hours anyway, but it won't be a problem because I can't do this one. So it's, it's different. Everybody's, um, the audition is the job. That is the job. And that's the way I try to, teach actors to look at it. You have a job. It's this audition. You have to get it filmed. And you have to turn it in. That's the job. Now, you may that job may continue. You may get a call and say, oh, we want, then you may get a chance to earn some money doing that job. But the audition is the job. And, and it's, um, there's not a lot of room for error, I'm afraid. I mean, it's just, it's so, I think because now they're, I think, I don't know if casting directors will get angry with me, but it's the only people who's not tired of Zoom are the casting people. So they, they if, if they were going to have, see, 30 people in their office on a Wednesday, well, they don't need that extra room. They might not need that extra assistant because they're going to see more than 30 people because they just send out these tapes. And I don't know if they watch all of them. I don't know. Some of them say they do, and I believe that, but some probably don't. Do you think in some ways, though, the self-taping is easier in that you don't have to get in your car yes. or take the bus or Uber or yep. Lyft? It's easier in that respect. It's also easier. It's not easier for me because I'm old and I'm set in my ways and I don't like it, but that's immaterial. It's easier for the, the, the digital natives, the young people who never knew a life without a phone or a camera, um, and are really skilled at it, many of them very skilled, it's kind of easier for them because they can do the audition until they get it the way they want it. 
in the old days, you'd walk into the room and you might not, your first take might not be good and that may be all you get. Thank you, thank you for coming in. And you walk out and you do, the, you do your best job in the car on the way home. So yes, that aspect of it is in some ways an improvement. But what's missing is the human element. You don't meet people, you don't, it's all on that little box. Then you're also not dealing with a sea of agendas and energies around you. True, yeah, I mean, I think it's generational. People my age, uh, I don't particularly like it. I'll, I do it and I do a good job with it. And I understand that how it has to be done. And, um, but you also like, you send it off into the ether and you generally hear nothing, nothing. And so you don't even get an attaboy or a good, you, you know, not that we all need a pat on the back, but um, sometimes you know, like when you go in and you meet someone in person and you do a really good job with your audition, you may not get that role, but you may get something from that office because they liked you. If they didn't even see that, I mean, they may watch all the tapes, but they maybe only watch 30 seconds and go, no, that, no, wrong wrong person, wrong whatever. So I don't know, I mean, I'd, I'd actually like to know. I'd like to be a fly on the wall of some of those offices and see what they do. And so I know, because we hired a very good casting director for the pilot we did, and they did an incredible job. But they're also one of the better, they've been around a long time and they're one of the better uh, casting offices. So I think it's like anything, there's, there's, there's the cream and then there's everything else. What do you think of people posting their audition tape online as part of their social media. I don't like it. Did you think it breaks sort of a code? That's an interesting question. Um, well, first of all, sometimes there are shows that are non-disclosures, so they're, they haven't even aired yet. Or sometimes they will send you what we call dummy sides. Do you know what that is? I don't, but... So dummy sides would be like you're auditioning for this character and they'll say, These, this isn't really the script, but it's, a, it, it's sides that are like that character. And you, you have no choice but to just play what you're given, you know. But I, no, I posting, people post way too much online about everything. But I, I, I don't know. That's a really good question. Everyone, you know, a lot of people just want to be seen and want to present their best life in that way. And I don't know. I don't think it's a good, I don't probably think it's a good idea. You know, particularly if, uh, I, I know people who do that a lot, actually, now that I think of it. I would never do that. Yeah, I was just wondering how casting directors think of it. If it's know. not embargoed good... or whatever, yeah. Well, if it's embargoed, obviously, you should never do that. But um, I, there's a guy that I know who's a very good actor. He's working quite a bit. He also, as a, as a side gig, does taping for people. And I've actually taped with him, and he's great. And he did this thing I thought was really cool because he booked some job on a, on a show, I don't know, a guest star role of some sort. And he took his audition tape and intercut it with the actual footage from the show to see, show you, this is what I did in this scene. Here's the scene as it was filmed. And I thought that was actually very instructive and cool. But that was also done, the show was, had already been aired. He had access to that footage, theoretically, I guess. And that was actually very teachable and instructive to see what he did that got that role and how it looked when it was filmed. That's kind of interesting. But yeah, posting just in general, 
People are crazy with that stuff. When you do get this person to film your self-tape, mm-hmm. um, are you there reading lines off of them or they're just an eye line to you? Uh, the place that I use, he's, a, he's an actor himself and he's very good. And so he is the eye line. I mean, now, now we're getting technical, but that's good. Uh, sometimes in, a, in an audition, you might have three people you're talking to and the eye lines get a little crazy. Like, so I often say just like pick two, get, have two, have two eye lines other, or unless somebody's in the back and you can talk to someone back there, that's different. But yeah, no, that guy would read with me and uh, he's actually quite good and he will coach a little bit. I mean, which I appreciate. He doesn't overstep, but I think that's smart. Most people don't do that. They just, they just, you know, set up the camera and go. But uh, yeah, no, he'll, he'll read with me. He's a very, he's very good at it. So I think it's tech, you know, the technical stuff is really important. The eye lines and all that stuff. It's just key. And props. They always tell you, don't bring props. I said, bring a prop if it helps you. I, I worked with somebody yesterday. She's playing a bartender. And so she had glasses and she had a rag she threw over her shoulder. I said, that all helps. There's nothing wrong with that. But they used to say, no, you can't do that. All these rules are very fluid now. Right? What does it mean for an actor to make bold choices with their character? I mean, that, that is a cliche, let's say. Make a bold choice, make a strong choice. But with every cliche, there generally is a grain of truth or it wouldn't have become a cliche. Um, I think that it's like um, if you're at the top of a mountain and you pour some water down the mountain, it's going to go, it's going to find its way down. That's the obvious way. That is the way down. The water is going to find it little rivulets and it's going to flow a certain way. And most scenes, particularly if you don't have a lot of time, you're just going to play it down the middle because you don't have time to really explore it and get deeper with it. I, I think trying to make the less obvious choice, the, the choice that may not be actually on the page. You have to understand who the end user is. The end user is the casting director and they're looking at lots of tapes. And they're looking at lots of versions of the same scene over and over and over again. And most people, because of either lack of imagination or lack of time, are going to kind of play it the same way. So if you can find a way that's justified, that's earned, where you can play something a little bit off to the side of the page, not down the middle of the page, that's what I would call a bold choice and a smart choice. You don't want to do that just to be different. It has to be earned and it has to feel like it has some fidelity to the character and the story. But I think that's, um, that's how I would define what a bold choice is, something that does not go down the middle. Because most of the time, as I said, Lack of time, lack of imagination, and they're watching all these tapes. They're all, we did that when I cast the pilot. I mean, a lot of the tapes were like, they're all kind of play it the same way. And the, the one person who may play it a little differently jumps out for whatever reason. Maybe it's not smart, maybe it's not right, but it's different. And so it's a little like, um, I like sports analogies, um, like in baseball, the great 
Warren Spahn, the winningest left-hander in the history of baseball, said that the pitcher's job is to upset the hitter's timing and the hitter's job is to upset the pitcher's timing. So I think that our job is to sort of break open the timing of that scene a little bit, change the rhythm of it a little bit, if you can find a way to do that, because they're going to hear it a certain way every time, over and over again. If you can find a way to creatively and smartly break up the rhythm. I'm, words and rhythm, very important to me in my own work and, and when, I, when I teach and when I coach. So that's what I would say would be a bold choice. Let's say you've already booked the job. Now you're on set. How bold do you get or no, that breaks, that, that disturbs the other actor in the scene. Right. You're upstaging someone. That's really case-by-case -case basis. It depends on the set. If you have a really loose improvisational set, you can do that. You can try that. I, I worked on Curb Your Enthusiasm where there's no script, basically. There's a story. There's a, there are scenes. And so uh, everyone's, you know, a lot of funny people. Larry David, uh, Ed Begley, Richard Lewis, Jeff Garland. You know, they're all going to try out stuff that's funny, and some of it will hit and some of it won't hit. That's an extreme example of where you can be bold and try something else. That's great. I don't think we're going to use that. Uh, but it just is different on a, on, a, on a show that is a well-oiled machine, a weekly kind of what I call factory television, those, those shows that just go week to week. They have a template, a visual template and a tone template that is, is established. That's what they do. They play to that. They have like, if you watch uh, SWAT, every seven minutes, someone's going down a hallway with a gun in the dark. I mean, that's part of the template. I'm exaggerating, but not that much. So you have to understand that. And you can't, on a show that has a really strong uh, template, you kind of can't do that. It just depends on the circumstance. But it's fun to play, and it's fun to do stuff that's different and out there, but you just have to kind of know your audience and know what world you're in. What's your advice to actors on finding their character? Finding their character within a certain script or within who they present as the full person of who they are? The latter. The latter, okay. Um, my advice on that is to be open to it, to really, I mean, the cliche is you're enough, you are enough. The cliche, that's kind of true, but it's only true if what you're presenting is examined and, and nuanced and interesting. Um, you know, don't, there's, there's, there's kind of a showbiz life, there's a backstage life, and then there's life. And my advice is to get involved in life. Do something real. And, um, you know, certain people are just, more inherently interesting than others. This is human nature. But to find that person that is your the core person that you present that kind of populates everything, um, that just takes time and it takes patience and it takes uh, kind of being honest with yourself as to you know who who you are and and what you know I. I I, what did I watch last night? I watched, who was it? I'm blanking on it now. 
been watching the morning show, which I think is so good. And, um, oh, this, this actor, I haven't seen him for a long time. He's an older guy named, um, Paul Guilfoyle, who's been in tons of stuff. I haven't seen him in a long time and he's older than me, which means he's really old, but he's like, I went, Oh, that's Paul Guilfoyle. Wow. Where has he been? But he just is there. I mean, he's just, he's, he has not only found that thing, he's, he is that thing. And it's a little bit like the Jack Warden story that I told. I think, I don't know how you, the advice is just to be open to it and to be willing to be honest with yourself about who you are. Because that's the whole ballgame as far as who you are dominates what you can do in, in the film and television world. So you really need to get acquainted with yourself. You need to be, you need to like yourself. When people say they don't get me, well, maybe they don't get you because you don't get you. Once you start to get yourself, people will start to get you. Is has been my experience, but that takes a long time. Some people never get there and some people get there pretty quickly. What's your advice for finding a character within the script? When you say finding it, you mean um, owning it? Owning kind it. Kind of branding it. Mm -hmm. Bringing your own yeah. take to what the director sees. Well, you're in charge of some of that, and there's some of that you're not in charge of. All you can do is, as my former student said, pretend that what's happening is happening to you personally. All you can do is make it personal. The other stuff you're not in charge of, there's all kinds of um, forces at play that, that kind of subvert that. I think that it's, it's knowing, it's kind of also knowing what your strike zone is. Everybody's got a strike zone. Like by that, I mean, not everybody has to have a huge range. I mean, I think that is the that is the the goal of the young actor. I can play everything. I can I can do all these parts. I can play an old man, even though I'm not an old man. I can play an Irishman, but I'm not Irish. They'll get an Irishman. Okay, they don't need you. They'll get an Irishman. So I think understanding who you are and understanding where you fit and being okay with that, because otherwise, trying to please them is a fool's errand. There's no pleasing them, whoever they are. We always talk about them. They don't get it. They don't get me. Well, they don't get you because you're not present and you're not bringing yourself to the work. And it sounds complicated. It's really simple. But until you make that turn, until you make that pivot as an actor, understanding, not just paying lip service to, but understanding that you are enough if the you that is presented is fully examined and interesting, then it becomes easier. But otherwise, it's this, you know, trying to please them. That's what, that's the, the on, on the tombstone of every failed actor. I tried to please them. Does that make sense? It does. Do you think it happens more with younger people? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it happens, younger people, some of them just are, are, are moving on instinct totally. They don't even understand the subtlety of that question. Some of them. So, and, and so they're blissfully ignorant. And sometimes that's great because lightning strikes, you know, they go, Oh, him. And you don't even know what, you don't even know what you got, but you know, that I've seen that happen a lot, but, um, it happens all the time because we want to please, we want to be picked. We want to get the gold star up on the wall. 
and be told we're good and we want to get that affirmation. And if we didn't want that, we wouldn't be human. But we don't always get that. I mean, the failure rate, if you can call it that, that's a harsh term, is significant. I mean, how many things do people audition for and when do they actually book something? And I see these things on, we were talking about social media earlier. Booked it, the big, you know, on Instagram <laughs> and stuff. Booked it. I, I want to I have one that says, didn't book it, still chill, still happy, didn't book it. Because that's the reality of it. Right? I mean, that is the reality of it. Booked it. It's like this whole thing of just presenting this kind of phony uh, confidence. And, and, and confidence is a hard one thing. And everybody's happy when you book. I mean, you know, your wife or husband or your partner, everybody's happy when you get a job because sometimes it's a great job too. But um, it's that, it's knowing who you are, it's, it all comes down to that. I mean, it's just simple that way for me. How do you know what your character's flaw is? Mm. Great question. <clears throat> I don't know that every character has a flaw, particularly in film and television, when you're doing more functionary roles, let's say. You know, that's a really good question. And I don't know that I have a good answer for it, but I think there's two things that I often tell people to think about that's one of them and the other one is does your character have a secret? Like what are what are you not saying? Sometimes what you're not saying is far more important than what you're saying what you choose not to say uh, in a scene like I'm gonna no, I'm not gonna say that I'm gonna say something different so you, you 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 watch a character shift focus so that's what you choose not to say is very revealing what the flaw is Sometimes it's real self, it's really evident in the script. You know, if, it's, if you're playing a murderer, <laughs> we know what the flaw is, or we know what the, the baseline of the flaw is. Uh, but for those more um, garden variety roles, sometimes they don't have a flaw, in, in my opinion. If we took that scene where I'm the HR manager or your superior writer, and maybe I don't want to let you know that IT's been in your computer. So I, hey, I need to talk to you. So then what What could something that I, how could I express it without actually saying that, you know, we've seen you know, online gambling coming from your computer. If I am holding this secret, what's a good line? What's a good way to play it? Um, good, great question. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, almost like, um, Starting out, I think, uh, not in, as a performance evaluation, but I just want to talk to you about, you know, what's going on. Are you happy? Things good? Good, good. You know, um, take a look at this. Does this look familiar to you? Show them something. It's mortified. What is that? Gambling. You're doing that here or you're doing that at home? both places. Do you need help? We have an HR department. We want to help you because otherwise we have to remediate this or we're going to have to let you go. So I don't know if this is answering your question, but it's, it's kind of understanding the way in. You know, the way in is, look, if, if she was a, he or she was a horrible boss and was very confrontational, that's a different scene entirely. If it's, if if the motivation of the boss is, I really like this person, he or she does a great job, 
I want to try to remediate this, but this is a big problem. That's a different scene entirely. And it also comes down to what else do we know about that character? What else do we know about the boss? What else do we know? Does he or she have uh, their own secret? Like, I don't know if you watched uh, Ted Lasso. I haven't watched it. Great show. I hear good things. There was a, you know, it's about a, it's about a football team, soccer team. We call it soccer. And they had a, <clears throat> they had a sports psychiatrist in, in part of the season. This um, African, not African-American, African black woman uh, in England. And she was just fantastic and, and uh, really substantial. And then we find out later on, she's got a drinking problem that's very well hidden. So does the, ac the actor, does the actor have to play that from the very beginning? The actor has a secret. The character has a secret. The character has a substance abuse problem, but the character is also in a position of authority and reverence. She's a mental health professional. She should be above reproach, but she's not. She's a human being. Sure. So depending of the vagaries and the subtlety of the script, you know, but some stuff is just cut and dry and very flat that way. B minus writing is what I call that. Right. Interesting. So then I'm sort of confronting you on your secret, but I have, let's say I have a shopping addiction. Yeah. But I don't want anyone to know that. So I feel uneasy about confronting you. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. What's the difference between art and business? Ooh. Well, they have to coexist. I mean, even um, Michelangelo probably had to make a deal to paint that ceiling, right? So it was an interesting lesson that I learned very early on. That's a great question. I love that. Because if you don't, if a if someone who is an actor or, or an artist of any sort doesn't think of themselves as an artist first, you'll never be an artist. You'll be just be a commodity. You'll be some sort of commoditized version of what you think you should be. But business is business. And I fell under the wing of a brilliant, brilliant theater director named Michael Langham, who ran the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis and Stratford in Canada, and he dressed, directed John Gielgud in the West End. I mean, he was a genius guy, and I was very lucky to fall under his um, tutelage for a while. And I looked up to him immensely as this great artist, which he was, an incredible artist. He's helped set a standard for me that I've never forgotten. But one time, he, he and I were talking, and I don't want to overblow my relationship to him, but we were, you know, he, he was very kind to me and very... Uh, he mentored me in, in interesting small ways. I got to know his whole family. But he was talking about business, and he said, you know, he said, you owe it to yourself to go for the money. He said, you've earned that by all the work you've put in as an artist. At some point, you'll be offered some money, and you owe, owe it to yourself to take that money because you've earned that money. And that kind of blew my mind. I thought it was really an interest. I didn't think he thought that way. I thought he lived up on a pedestal somewhere, and he didn't. I mean, he was a he was a brilliant director, but also knew his business. And I think the difference is understanding that each has a place. And I mean, what I don't see enough of is people who want to be artists because it's not really a rewardable virtue in a way. Uh, you're really encouraged to be a commodity 
more than an artist, and so then you have a then you have a sell by date. When you're just a commodity, you have a sell by date. You can be an artist for your whole life. It's not easy. It's horribly difficult and challenging, but I think that's the difference. But you know, you you do have to have a sense of of, of what the business is and what not the business, but business itself, and understanding that. I understood that. I think because of how I was raised and my parents and everything, I always had a very good sense of that. And so that wasn't a lesson I really had to learn, but it's the hard part was try to be an artist. That's the hard part. The business part was easy for me. It always was. But to try to be an artist and to fail at being an artist much of the time is the hard part, is the challenge. You know, I, I did a I did a one-person play about six years ago, which was the hardest thing I ever did. My wife said, why are you doing this? Are you driving yourself crazy? And it was an hour and a half of me talking. And he was, he was also like a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor, and so it was a whole thing, and it was really challenging. I said, I'm doing it because it's there, and it's been put in my world, and to not do it, would mean I'm not an artist, and I want to see if I can do that. That's a really big mountain to climb for me. I'd never done that. I mean, it's, it was so challenging, and it ended up being great. It ended up being I was very happy with the results, but it took it took some time, and it took uh, a lot of effort. But it was oh yeah, I can do that. Yes, I have that within me, and I think we have to do that from time to time. One one of my good friends, she's a wonderful actress herself. Uh, a little older than me, but had, has had a great career. And she said, I can't believe you did that. I can't, first of all, I can't believe you did it, number one. Number two, I can't believe you did it in front of your students. You let your students see it. I said, what, what, are, you, I said, what, are, you, what are you talking about? She said, well, what if you were bad? And they saw their teacher being bad. I said, that never occurred to me that I would be bad. It just didn't occur to me. Well, no, I'm not going to be bad. I'm going to be great. That's the whole point. But... So she was coming from a fear-based thing, like, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, do this in front of your students because they look up to you, and if you are mediocre or you're not good, it's... Uh, I said, uh, if, that, if that thought entered my mind, I wouldn't have gotten out of bed in the morning. So to be an artist is the highest thing you can do, but you do have to... And, and I ended up producing that, so I was the businessman, too. <laughs> yeah. Would you say auditions, callbacks, rehearsals, um, and performances are the art of acting? Um, they're building blocks. The art of acting is in performance, I think. I mean, I had a the, the play that I just referenced. I had one night. It was always good, but I had one night where I was like, and, and two people who were involved with the production came back and said, what happened? I said, I don't know. It was magic. It was magic. And I touched it for a second. And I never quite got that again in that performance. I, I, I did, it was great, but it wasn't that. And so that's the thing that keeps you. It's like people who play golf. I used to play golf. I'm a recovering golfer. But if you hit one great shot in a round, they're like, whoa, what an incredible shot. It brings you back. You go, I got to play again. I got to play again. I got to do it again. And I think acting is that way. When you, you know, you're, only, you're always as good as the best thing you ever did. 
So I tell that to people. When you're in a down place and you're not doing well and you're not feeling good about your work, what was the best thing you ever did? Think about that. You're still that good. You just haven't accessed it right now for whatever reason. Lots of reasons. Life gets in the way, you know, whatever. But you're always that good and that's the thing you have to hold on to because uh, it just tears you apart. It's heartbreaking for a lot of people. Well, if something is too easy though, then we lose interest. Exactly. Well, so. Exactly. There are people who have the gift and don't know they have the gift and don't really appreciate how, you know, that they have this gift and, and, and don't nourish the gift. Those are rare people who have that. What is the business of acting? The business of acting is um, sustaining yourself sustaining yourself in a career that allows you to have a life. I think what's happened now, and I think it's, it's um, a little bit reflective of what's happened in our culture. In our culture, we'll have, we now have a lot of very rich people and we have a lot of very poor people and the middle class has been a little bit changed. I think the same thing is true in the acting profession. You've got a lot of people making a lot of money and you got a lot of people not making any money. And the, there used to be, and I was one of them, kind of a middle class or upper, upper middle class actor where you could make a certain amount of money every year, whether you were doing guest star roles, two, three weeks on a movie, have a voiceover campaign. You weren't necessarily a star. You didn't get that show that ran for seven years, but you were in the mix and you were working and you could make a really good living and build up your pension, which thank goodness I have now, which is wonderful. Uh, I think that's kind of disappeared. It's much harder. The idea of sustaining yourself solely as an actor is kind of gone. I hear this from people who I really love and respect, young people who are working. You look at their resume and you go, wow, look at all the things you've done. They have to bartend. They have to do all this other stuff. So, you know, for me, it was voiceover. I, did, I was very good at voiceover. I had a really good career at it. So that was my day job, kind of. And it was great because it allowed, I made, there were times when I made enough money doing that when I would say, mm, I don't want to do that audition that for that, it's a stupid show, I don't want to be on it. Again, I'm a snob sometimes. And because I have a little FU money, okay, so because I'm making money doing that. So, you know, that was what we now call a side gig, but it was really like a main part of my career for a long time and it allowed me to be selective. So the business of it is tricky. It's really tricky and I think being able to sustain yourself solely by doing it is really a challenge, much more so than it used to be. What does an actor need to know right now about the business of acting? Um, it depends, it depends, another great question. It depends on the stage that they're in. Like when you have people who are graduating from their BFA program at USC or UCLA or Carnegie or NYU, one of those places, they don't really, they're starting to a little bit kind of teach about the business of acting. But I don't think academia really sees that as their job in general. They're doing more of it now than they used to. They used to do none of it. And when I went, I taught at USC for a while and I taught a class about the actor's reel. Because your reel is like your business card. But that's all changed now too. People don't have reels in the same way. That's a different discussion. But so I think what they need to know 
are you in it for a cup of coffee or are you here for dinner? Because if you're in it for a cup of coffee or you're just testing the water, and I tried it for a while, it really wasn't for me, fine, go. Go with God, have a good time, have a different life, it's fine. No one's going to judge you. But if you're in it for the long haul, I talked to somebody recently who was a student of mine at USC, actually, who I just think is amazing. And I asked her, are you, are you in this? Are you in this? Absolutely, she's in it. I said, great. Then you don't, you don't need, you just need some, you need to hear yourself say that. And you need to know that that's going to be a really hard road, challenging road. But it's also brilliant and exciting and fun it's just everybody's route to it is different. Everybody's, you talk to 10, 10 different people who've been successful at this. They all have, <coughs> excuse me, different circuitous routes that they followed that there isn't a real tried and true template for how you become successful at it. But what they need to know about it is that it's a business, that it isn't personal, that it is, you know, your, your rejection is always personal to you. When you're rejected for something, it's personal to you. But it's not personal. The casting people, they want you to get that role. They really do. They're, they're, most of the time, they're in your corner. They want you to, they want you to solve their problem. Their problem is, we've got to cast this role. We've seen 50 people. Ah, there's the solution. That person just came into this equation, this casting thing. They want that to happen. So it's just a, it's understanding that it's a long slog. You know, and you need also need to have somebody, you can't do it alone. You cannot do it alone. I, I have, my wife is incredible and she's been by my side for decades and I could not have done any of this without her. And so you need a partner, whether it's your best friend, whether it's a wife or husband or partner, you need somebody, you need a community of people. That's kind of what my studio has become for a lot of people. And I think any good Acting studios should be that. Many of them aren't, but I think it's really important that you have a group of fellow travelers who are trying to all row the boat in the same direction and will support each other. When we did our pilot, um, we used some studio people and we had some people we couldn't cast because it wasn't right for whatever. We had people show up to do extra work. You talked about being background. But no, they were driving out to the middle of nowhere, 100 degree heat, just to be a stand-in because they like what we're about. And, and there's a lot of goodwill that gets built up. And that, that is not lost on me. I think you need to have that community of people and hopefully, if you're lucky, a partner or husband or wife or whatever to help you down the road and to understand how hard it is because it's super hard. It's, 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 you know, you can't, here's the other thing I've learned about this. You can't discourage people. I'm not in the discouragement business. It does no good. No one could have discouraged me. They could have said, oh, it's terrible. Don't do it. You do anything else. It's... I was not to be discouraged. And so maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. But discouraging people is like spreading a cold. It's nothing good comes from it. You know, you can be real with people and tell them, you know, what you really think they should work on and what their chances are. That's just always a stupid question. You know, what are my chances? I don't know. I don't know what my chances are. You know, so, but it's, it's just being real with them about what it is and what it isn't. And if you're after 
the commoditized version of yourself. And some people are, and some people are really good at that. You know, the influencers, Instagrammers, and they create, you know, right now, if there's a casting decision between two people and one has a gigantic following and one doesn't, guess who's going to, and it's, and it's equal, they can't make a decision, you know who's going to get the part. That's currency now. That's currency. And so do I endorse that? Not really, but you got to do what you got to do. It's more of a young person's game, that aspect of it. There was a great comment that someone left on one of our acting videos, and I forget which one, but it was it had me thinking for a while, and he just said, and I'm assuming it's a he, um, you know, the, the guy in my class that studied theater, he, he had to go to L.A., and he did, and he ended up waiting tables, taking extra work, and living in slum housing, is what he called it. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, like, I don't envy him or whatever. But it had me thinking just because I get it, but he could have stayed wherever stayed was. He could have gotten a job as an accountant. Nothing wrong with it. Right. Great, great, very important work. Could have had a nice home, nice cars, things like that. Would he have been happy? Sometimes you just have to take a risk and, and see the if this is The other thing is, I, say, I always say, put yourself on kind of a schedule. Like, if you, if you come out to L.A. and you give it 10 years, it's a long time. You give it 10 years and you're like nowhere. Maybe it is time to redirect your life a little bit or find something that's ancillary to that that you actually can do and make a living at. Um, I, I believe in that. I think making your, giving yourself really specific goals. When I came to L.A., I didn't know anything. I really, I mean, I was a theater guy and I was a snob and all that stuff. But I, there was a show I wanted to be on. It was Hill Street Blues. I wanted to be on that show because everybody who was anybody was on it. All the smart people watched it. I said, that's what I want. And I made that a goal. And I, and I got on it eventually after six or seven auditions. So I always say if you have a specific goal, you will get a more specific result. If you have a general goal like, I just want to work. No one's interested. I want to work in that. I like that show. Be really specific and be, be, be forensic about understanding, okay, who cast that show? Do I know somebody who knows that office? You got a network. It is who you know, by the way. Absolutely it is who you know. Who you know gets you in the door. What you know may get you the job. But it's important to, to network and to be, and I, I was never someone, I was never really good at that because I didn't want to network with people I didn't like. And I never did, kind of. You know, I'm happy to network with people who I think are cool and I like and I'm simpatico with and we understand each other. But if they're just awful, I just couldn't do that. That's me. But, you know, I mean, I know some people who are, that's just, they are on every red carpet and, they, and they're on every Instagram post and you look at their resume and they haven't really done very much, but they're everywhere. That's a different thing entirely. That's just chasing something for your own self-aggrandizement, right? Well, that's what I was going to ask. You said give yourself a timeline, but time goes by very quickly, especially in this town. There's a lot of distractions. Yep. And so if we're not really on a path of making things happen, we can trick ourselves yep. into thinking we're making things happen. <laughs> yes. And that's very easy here in this, oh, this yes. little bubble. You know. But set, I mean, set goals. Like you, you arrive in town and you, your goal is 
you want to have a really good agent within a year. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. It's really hard to get an agent right now, by the way. Really hard. Oh, why? Sorry. Uh, because they're all struggling. They're all, you know, first of all, the whole casting equation has changed. It's very much now about um, ethnic casting is much a much bigger thing than it was. Uh, you know, multi-ethnic casting and all that. And that's great. And that's, you know, everyone... Everyone has their place at the table, but it's just it's just harder. There's more people chasing it. It's not a personal business anymore where you really meet people. And so you, you know, if all you're doing is existing on Zoom and meeting people on Zoom, it's just it's it's just different. It's so it's very impersonal, frankly, in in my experience. I mean, it's different for me because I've been here so long and I know a bunch of people and I know you know, I had somebody yesterday wants some help trying to get an agent or a manager, and I said, I'll do what I can. And she's quite brilliant. And I said, I'll do what I can. I, you know, most of the time it's a no, but I do know some people who are really top at that. And I am happy to, I said, but I can only use that bullet once, because once I fired that bullet, I can't fire it a second time with that person. So you got to be ready and all that. So that's the business side of it. And it's, it's just, I just think there's more people. They say there's more work, but the work is everywhere. So like if there's a show shooting in Atlanta or New Orleans or New Mexico, they shoot a lot of stuff all over. The parts that an, a young actor used to get, like a small co-star part in a show, they're going to cast that in Atlanta. Where They're not going to fly somebody in for that. So those little building block parts that actors used to get back in the day are fewer. They're harder to find. Or we feel like we have to fill a racial quota so we have to cast that part this way or whatever. There's lots of different reasons. They all make sense and they all make sense economically because it's all about the bottom line. But I just think it's, I think it's exponent, it's always been hard, I think it's exponentially harder now, in my opinion. How does an actor come up with a quote unquote game plan for their career? Maybe they're fresh from Minnesota. That's where I'm from. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think you have to make a game plan. So how do they come up with it? You know, the basics are I need to get, first of all, I need to have enough funds where I can exist for a while. I need to get a day job. I need to get an agent. I need to get a manager. I need to get a commercial agent because that's easier to get. And if I get a big commercial, it pays a lot of money. So you, there's a short-term game plan. There's a long-term game plan. I think the short-term game plan is what I just described. People, you know, there's no shortage of people still coming here, still with the dream, you know, <clears throat> and and it still is the center. It's still the center of the talent business, um, Los Angeles, New York as well. I mean, New York is a, is similar in that way, uh, and so I think the game plan is originally. Uh, the, the initial game plan is survival, get a job, get a place to live, get a car, get a, get, you know, and, and call everyone you know who knows anybody and see if I can get a toehold, find a class, find a teacher, find a coach, whatever. And that ends up sometimes just being the only game plan people have because they can't, they can't move off from that. There are those who... Um, 
it's like, I'm going to do, do another golf analogy. Like there are people who hit balls on the driving range and there's people who play golf. So people who are class rats, who are always in class, who've been in class for 10 years, 12 years. And I have some of those. And they, but the, the ones I have work. They also work. They're in class for a while. They, they're not in for a year or two. They come back for a year or two. That's different. But the people who never venture out of that bubble of class, they're hitting balls on the driving range, but they're not playing the game of golf because the game of golf requires, oh, there's a downhill lie. Oh, there's a water hazard there. Oh, I'm in the sand. What do I do? So it's different. So that the short-term plan is getting all those things together, uh, the survival stuff. The long-term plan is, I'm a believer in you have to make the plan, set the goal, and, and the goalposts are often moving and fluid because things change. You know, you either get, some people get very lucky. There are people, I, I know a lot of them, bless them, get very lucky, something happens and they just fall into it. And some people, you know, we all know, pardon me, we all know really talented actors, brilliantly talented actors, who've never gotten any traction in anything. I know people like that. And it's hard. It's hard for them. It's hard to see. Some of them give up. Some of them don't. Uh, and you know, see people of, of very modest, mediocre talents who, who do very, very well. Whether they have a game plan or not, I, I always think you have to have it. You have to create it and have it and know that it's changeable because only thing that's constant in this endeavor is change. The amount of changes that I have seen starting in my early, early career to now are just mind-blowing. I mean, and at a certain point you go, I don't want any more change. I want it to stay the way it is, but it never does, of course. So you have to adapt. And you have to adapt to what's new, what's fresh, what people are interested in, what people are looking for, what people what about you will resonate in some way that you never thought of before? So having the plan is important, but also knowing that the plan is very fluid and changeable is also important because most plans don't work. Most plans have to be adapt. You have to be adaptable. And and you know when I when I first bought my house, I was working a lot, and then all of a sudden, nothing nothing. And I had this guy, this great guy, next, we had, I had these next door neighbors who were vaudevillians. They were a vaudeville dance team. Oh, wow. Phenomenal people, just amazing people. And he had been an actor and he knew I was an actor. I didn't know him very well. And he knew I was an actor and he kind of, he, he came up to me. I had been in the house three, four months and all of a sudden work had just dried up and I had a house payment to make. We were starting family and all that stuff. And he said, and he was like a really like almost like a Damon Runyon character. He was an old timey New York guy, great guy. And he said, how's it going, kid? I said, eh, not so good. Really? That's all right. It'll get better. It's like a streetcar. A new one always comes by. And uh, he said, you need anything? I said, uh, uh, what do you mean? Do you need a touch? Do you need a little money? He hardly knew me. Wow. I said, no, but no, I know. Thank you, but no. He said, well, if you ever need anything, you come to me, kid. I said, that's on the level, kid. It was like I'm talking to a Damon Runyon character. But I mean, his was a guy who had been in show business his entire life. He 
was in his 80s at that point, and he started as a kid, and had been on Broadway, had been on the Ed Sullivan Show, and had been, and so he knew that the long trajectory of the career, he knew stuff that I didn't know. I was freaking out because I just bought a house and I stopped working, you know. But so that that plan is is it's as valuable as the paper it's written on, which is means it's you got to have it, but you have to also have to understand how it moves and shakes, and you got to be adaptable and reinvent, 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 reinvent. That's what it is. Are there any don'ts? You've mentioned a lot of wonderful do's mm -hmm. on the game plan. Uh, what about don'ts? Stay away from this, be um, cautious of this. Don't fall under the influence of a guru, because there's a lot of that, which I think is really hurtful and harmful. Um, How do you know they're a guru, though? Sorry. Well, when you get into... a it's a good question because many of the people who are gurus are also quite brilliant and they attract followers and you know they're a guru when, let's just say in an acting class, but there, it happens in other areas too, when it becomes about pleasing the teacher and not about your own personal growth, you're in the presence of a guru, you're in the presence of a narcissist. This is very common, very common. I have seen it. I've seen people who've been involved with uh, some acting studios that won't be named, where I've had to, I won't use the word deprogram, but like I had one guy who was a fantastic actor and he was with this place for two years and he said, I don't even know how to act anymore. I've just, I'm destroyed. I don't have, I've lost whatever it is I had. Well, then you know you're in trouble, right? That's, that's not good. So you have to understand you have to have a judgment as like who's throwing the BS and who isn't and what's the truth? What's the emus? The truth, which is Yiddish for truth. You've got to be after the emus, the truth. And so uh, some people have bad judgment and they don't know and they, they, they learn the hard way or they get stung or they get abused or whatever. There's a lot of that. So, I mean, it's really important to surround yourself with people who understand what you're about. So don't fall under that influence. The other don'ts are like, don't sell yourself short. Don't decide that you're only, you're only worth being at this level. Um, when I was talking to this young woman yesterday who I'm trying to help out with maybe finding a new manager, she's brilliant. I mean, she's, I don't throw that word around. She's brilliant. And I said, you deserve that. You deserve somebody really good because you are outstanding. You're an uncommon talent. And so, and I think she needed to hear that. I said, do you know that about yourself? It's quiet. I said, know that about yourself. That's important because you are that way and you deserve somebody great. And so you don't deserve, you know, there's a lot of bottom feeders who are agents, managers, whatever. And um, so know your worth. Don't fall under the bad influence and stay interested. Stay interested. I often ask people, what are you like? What are you, are you watching something that interests you? Who are your heroes? Who do you like? Who's great? Why don't you like that person? That's interesting. What, you know, to sort of develop a taste level that's high. The great Ira Glass quote, do you know that quote? Uh, it's about writers, but it's really about anybody who's doing anything creative. 
he basically, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's a brilliant quote. He basically says that when you start doing something creative, you have a taste level that's really high. That's what got you into it because you, you understand what's good. But for the longest time, your work isn't as good as what your taste level is. And the only way to get there is to just do lots and lots of work, to just continue to do work, to fail upward a little bit, let's say, so that at some point, your level of talent and skill matches your level of taste. So I can see things like I'm watching The Morning Show right now, which I think is brilliant, and I go, wow, I mean, I would love to be in that and I could play in that playground. When I did uh, Big Little Lies, it was like I hadn't worked for a little while because I've been doing other things. I've been teaching, writing books, doing all that stuff. And I went, oh, I've been invited back to the grown-ups table. That's what it feels like. And I was nervous. But it was, I was nervous for no reason. It was great. It went great and it was fun and it was, I, I felt um, validated in that way. And so I think it's understanding what you're worth. And a lot of that is just who, you know, a lot of that is who you are, you know, what, you know, everybody's got some bad stuff in their background that holds them back, an abusive parent or whatever. We've all got something. But it's understanding your story. What's your story? Who are you? That worldview exercise. Who are you? What's your story? And do you deserve that? If you don't think you deserve it, you're in the wrong line of work. You've got to believe that. And um, sometimes you get lucky and, you, and you, get, you get to play with people at a very, very high level. And whenever I've been lucky enough to do that, it's been just like, it, it should feel logical that you're there. Oh, this makes sense that I'm here with Robert Duvall or Paul Mazursky or somebody else. That just makes sense because that's what I've been working toward. That's how I see myself. So it's a lot of self actualization and really and and positive thinking and um, my mother used to say I'm going to give you a Dutch uncle talk and she would tell me she would build me up she was a little nuts my mother but she would build me up in ways that were really helpful and it's it's important to build yourself up and have people around you not to shine you on not to tell you how great you are when you're not but to really share the dream that you have with you as much as they can it's, it's only going to be your dream, but to share it with people, like-minded people, whether it's a partner or a community.